All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, as I like to tell you every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And if you're interested in signing up for Chen's letter, now is the time to do so, because Chen is accepting new subscribers over the first couple of weeks of this new quarter here, the first couple of weeks of July. So go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, put your name on the waiting list, and then you'll receive immediately a notice uh, of uh, subscription possibilities from Chen Lin. So uh, you can also call our number in New York at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 during normal work hours. You can also go to uh, miningstocks.com uh, to purchase a, a subscription to Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. Also want to suggest that you continue to follow me at Jay Taylor Media on Twitter, jaytaylormedia.com on Twitter. Also, uh, send your emails and comments, criticisms, praises, what have you, to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for this week's show is Novo Resources, Cornerstone Capital, and Balmoral Resources. I've titled today's show, The Media, Gold, and One World Dictatorship. Are you ready? James Perloff is my main guest. Unfortunately, Sean Wallace, who is busy talking to investment bankers in Toronto today about RN resources, had to again cancel, uh, but I do expect that Sean will finally be with me next week, even if I need to pre-record him, as I, I think I probably will, to make sure that he's with us for next week. I, although I was disappointed not to have Sean with me today, I think it will be worth the wait because RN Resources is building what I believe will be a major gold mining deposit, and its announcement last week of the acquisition of North Country Gold Corp to acquire a 100% interest in the Committee Bay Gold Project in Nunavut will accelerate that process as far as I can tell. Now, I expressed to my subscribers last week why I think Aaron will emerge as a huge winner in the junior gold space. Uh, so those of you uh, who subscribe will understand why I am so excited about this stock. But again, you uh, should be hearing from Sean Wallace in the near future, hopefully next week. Now, I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, are sick and tired of hearing me talk about gold mining stocks because over the past four or five years, they've done nothing but lose value. And I believe that is largely because of massive market manipulation and propaganda and world military domination by the United States and NATO in order to maintain the status quo, that is the petrodollar, which... uh, 
which really replaced the real dollar, the gold-backed dollar in 1971. But regardless of whatever government manipulation may take place in the short term, ultimately, nature's laws will, I believe, prevail over governments. I think that's been proven time and time again throughout history. The Keynesian dictators who rule over the United States economy are messing things up royally. And that's by constant interference in the markets, not allowing capital to be priced properly, destroying capitalism, if you will. And But we're starting to see false uh, economic theories, those false economic theories, I sh- should say, starting to gain exposure as the, this Keynesian pathology plays out in Greece and China and now closer home even to Puerto Rico, which I think is much more serious than most people recognize. The world financial markets are becoming increasingly dangerous, and I'm finding them downright frightening. In such an unstable world, if gold were free to trade without constant paper shorts, paper short positions funded by printing press banks like J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, and the likes, gold would, in my view, be rising dramatically about now as the markets come unglued, and fiat currencies would more quickly be heading towards the dustbin of history. By the way, if you have not listened to my discussions with David Jensen, I urge you to do so because David clearly demonstrates that both the gold and silver prices that are quoted out of the LBMA are clearly fraudulent. Just click on the David's picture at J. Taylor Media and it will take you to a list of discussions that provide overwhelming evidence that the Gold Antitrust Action Committee that started up in 1998 and its allegations of fraudulent uh, gold manipulation, uh, that, that certainly is, is correct and that's what's going on. But once again, I have no doubt that sooner or later, nature's laws will ultimately prevail and no one knows that better than my next guest, Michael Oliver, who will be with me in just a minute to talk about today's plunging gold price as well as the increasingly frightening equity markets. Another technical analyst who relies on price charts sent out a missive today uh, suggesting that gold was heading towards its real uh, real strong base of around $1,000 per ounce. Well, we will ask Michael what he thinks about that forecast. But getting back to my main guest today, James Perloff, at about 25 minutes past the hour, uh, he will be with me to talk about uh, efforts underway to set up a one-world dictatorship and how the mainstream media, which is owned and controlled by a very tiny ruling elite, are manipulating the population into accepting a one-world government dictatorship and the abolition of sovereign nations. Of course, to do this, this ruling elite must keep gold under wraps in order to keep the masses accepting the money the ruling elite is creating out of thin air and using uh, to essentially to bid away a wealth and control the system. So James will discuss the moves since World War I to destroy national sovereignty and how the media is uh, used to shape and control the minds and hearts of not only Americans but citizens around the world. But believing that the laws of nature ultimately prevail, we retain hope. We have to go to the break now, but when we come back, I'm happy to tell you that Michael Oliver will be with me uh, to tell me how much longer he thinks the market's historical choice for money, namely gold, can be kept under wraps. On a day when gold was slammed extremely hard in the, uh, the London afternoon fix, uh, it uh, was really challenging the lows of $1,140, which uh, looks uh, pretty key right now. If it can hold 1140 perhaps we're okay. At least that's the way I see it. But we'll hear what Michael has to say after the break. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Oliver. Mm-hmm. 
Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per tonne. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me once again Michael Oliver. And I uh, would just uh, ask all of you out there to jot down his website. It's olivermsa.com, Oliver, M as in Mary, S as in Sam, A as in Albert.com. Uh, go there for additional information on uh, this great technician's work. Uh, topics we speak about with Michael, mostly debt, equity, and precious metals markets uh, in general. Uh, on this show, but Michael covers many more things than that. Within the equity markets, he covers some major stocks like Apple. Uh, he covers major foreign debt markets like the German boons as well as U.S. Treasuries. He covers a host of commodities like cattle and oil and copper. He covers biotechs, Mooney bonds. He mentions all kinds of spreads that are very helpful in finding directions and relative values of various markets. And uh, foreign stock markets and currencies as well. In short, Michael's service covers many more markets than he discusses here. Uh, we're focused mostly on gold and the, and the equity markets and the bond markets because those are the biggies as far as we're concerned. But Michael really does provide a great service for his, uh, for his subscribers. And I would suggest if you're an accredited investor, you may want to consider uh, subscribing to his letter. It's OliverMSA.com. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining me again. I'm glad to be back, Jay. Always good to have you today. Uh, the markets have been in considerable turmoil, it seemed, earlier. The equity markets were down more than 200 points in the United in the U.S., the Dow was, that is. Uh, and the S&P and the NASDAQ were down hard as well. Uh, gold got tanked really hard, and that's what I'd like to ask you about to start with. Gold hit a low of 1140 in March of this year, I believe. And today, uh, as is so often the case, in the London PM fix, it was smashed down hard, this time falling about 11.48. At least that's what I saw on my screen, or very near that 11.40 mark. Now, today a fairly well-known technician named Clive Mond uh, put out an article on his gold price charts that suggested that gold was likely now heading towards a very major support of 1,000. And, you know, Michael, as I looked at the charts strictly from a price basis, uh, some time ago I thought, gee, get prepared because that looks like that could be the real strong base at 1,000. But, you know, you, as you've expressed so often on this show, you look at things other than just price. Uh, what are you seeing uh, as you look at your momentum and structure? Uh, what, what are you seeing for gold now? Or, uh, how worried are you that we might see 1,000? I'm a, uh, a bullish fence sitter. <laughs> okay. 
I mean, I think if one is a, an investor and even even a trader in gold, I mean, and your outlook is uh, several quarters, being long gold around 1180, which was the low in uh, the summer of 2013, and again late 2013, that was plunged out in a spike, which I know a lot of people are looking for another one, but that occurred in November of last year. We spiked down to a low of 1131, meaning the low 10-point tick was 1140, but almost got to 1130, then soared back up above the 1180 level, the prior broken lows, as if, well, I broke it, so what? And since then, the market has been in an arm wrestling match. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest something to frustrated gold bulls and those who are looking for this big spike to 1,000. Let's say you're long S&P seven, eight, nine months ago, and you got to be frustrated as heck right now because you were down on the year today. We closed last year 2059, and we're up on the year now by 10 points or so. But the point is that here it's been this many months gone by in the great bowl of S&P, and you're kissing your sister, as it were. Okay, mm. The same is true with the gold bears or the, or the, the awaiting gold bulls who want that opportunity at 1,000 or wherever they think it's going to be. They've got to be getting frustrated, too, because we've taken a lot of these downside stabs in the last uh, six, seven, eight months, and they don't seem to get traction. Uh, I'm of the opinion that that new low, if it's going to occur below the 1131 low of last November, will probably only carry to 1080, not to 1000, but 1080 to 1090 area. I've got some reasons for that, if we make another spike low, and I'm not even sure we're going to do that. Meanwhile, if I were a short in the gold market right now, looking for that next 100-point drop, if I saw the market go back above the high of this week, which was 1174, or if I were short gold miners and I saw the GDX go back above the high trade of this week, or the uh, HUI go back above the high trade of this week and go to your screen and find what that number is, I'd cover <laughs> because something's wrong. You're not getting your downside. Now, I'm not going to forecast that we're not going to get that sharp break or that we're going to recover from right here, but I'm saying the bears and gold got to be about as frustrated as the bulls. And I think that's a context to, to think about. Yeah. Well, you know, so certainly the gold share investors uh, also have gotten really, really stressed out because of, you know, we've been sitting here since 2011, and it's very painful, I can tell you, as, as being someone who's long, probably long more than I should be on the gold market, in the gold share market. Um, and yet, you know, Michael, as a fundamental analyst, I look at companies and I see, unless you think gold is going to $100, uh, there are some just absolute bargains out there. Well, let's say $1,000 might get me concerned. Um, but you, you had earlier thought that uh, when gold finally turns around, the gold shares should outperform mm-hmm. The bullion, are you still of that mind? I'm still of that opinion. I think that uh, they'll both turn at once. Now, right now, the gold stocks remain weaker than gold. Most of them have made new lows versus recent year or so lows in the various uh, metrics, the XAU index, the HUI, and so forth. Marginal, marginal new lows. No momentum reading that I've got is confirming those lows. So that's, that's a bullish positive. So if you make a new price low, but momentum says, no, I'm not making a new low. That type of divergence is a tap on the shoulder. It says, hey, this thing's running out of gas. Despite the overt price scariness, uh, it is running out of gas. It is old. It is basing. And I, my opinion is that when you get your first turn from gold, whether it's from 1,000 or whatever or from right in here, that the percent gain in that first surge in gold will be far less than the percent gain in these gold miners. Uh, they're, yeah. they're bottle rockets. They could go up 50, 70% in a heartbeat 
from current price levels, whereas gold is going to be hard for it to do that. So I still think, yes, uh, watch gold as your core, your metric that you're measuring, but go with the gold miners once you can identify a turn in gold. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes a certain amount of sense from a fundamental point of view, especially if you've got a, a gold company that's uh, their project is break even at uh, current gold prices. And as soon as you start seeing something on the upside, all of a sudden they start making money. So that's, you know, from a fundamental point of view. But, you know, I'd like to ask you about the S&P gold spread. Uh, what does that tell you? What are you looking at there, Michael? Because I know you're big on spreads, not only in the uh, S&P, not only equities to gold, but a lot of other spreads. But what are you looking at there, the relative value? What a spread is, for your listeners who may not know, is simply measuring one asset versus the other. Instead of gold versus the number of dollars per ounce to buy gold, it's uh, how many ounces of gold to buy the S&P. So you divide the price of gold into the S&P and express the difference as a percent, and you plot it. Go back 10, 20 years, whatever. Right now, gold is two to three times higher relative to the S&P than it was in 2000. So if in 2000 you went long gold to short the S&P, you're making good money. Mm-hmm. So as an asset category, gold is handily beating the S&P over the last 15 years. And you can go back further. Now, recently it's lost because from 2011 that spread collapsed. But it's still much higher than it was in 2000. The action of the spread, the difference between gold and the S&P over the last year, has stabilized after gold lost a lot of its relative value. Uh, and it's stabilized in such a way that when I look at the momentum charts of the spread, it says this is a bottoming pattern. Now, I don't have a breakout yet where gold is asserting its power over the S&P once again, but we're not far away. It wouldn't take a you know, 30-point S&P drop and a $30 rally of gold to pretty much lock that in. Mm-hmm. So right now, it's fence-sitting, just like the gold market is. On a net price basis, it's fence-sitting. People are tortured both ways. The spread, though, has a biased look to me of a bottom, indicating that gold is preparing to again assert itself into a positive trend versus the S&P. Okay, Michael, with about two minutes left, uh, mm-hmm. you indicated before we came on the air uh, that you're really watching very carefully. You think this is a key market. Is the German Bund, I believe, in the Treasury markets? Well, yeah. The, I expected when we first got a, we got a sell-off in the equities, European and U.S., that you would get it buying flight to safety into U.S. T-notes, T-bonds, and the German Bund, which are the more stable of the debt instruments. But as the ECB priced the yields down to unrealistic levels in the French, Spanish, Italian, and German Bund to, you know, zero interest rate or trivial interest rate levels that are off the page ridiculous. That came undone in May and June of this year when we had a rapid rise in yields in the European bond markets. But what's happened in the last week is even more interesting. It indicates not only has the market, have market forces taken over the interest rate pricing in Europe, but they've differentiated now between the German Bund and those three others, the French, Italian, and Spanish. The uh-huh. German Bund in recent days has the yield has dropped back down as people have bought into the Bund for safety. But the yield in the Italian, French, and Spanish bonds has barely come off the highs. Wow. So there, there is a movement into the bonds, but not into the French, Italian, and Spanish bonds. That, I think, is what the Greek issue is about. It's not Greece itself. It's pointing out bad debt. And if three countries have bad debt, have much larger proportions than Greece, those are the three. And the spreads of those markets is indicating to me that investors aren't flocking back into those bonds. Uh, so yeah. 
that, that's, that's, very, a spread difference. that's an important spread difference. A very, very important difference. Yeah, we saw it, we saw it before also uh, when the spreads widen like that. It's indicative of, of major problems as a flight to quality. Last year we saw Cyprus, the problem with Cyprus. This year Greece is much, much larger than Cyprus. And this thing just keeps building as they try to defy the natural laws of economics, I think, Michael. And, uh, well, we, we depend on you to help us see the, uh, the, the structure and the momentum and that sort of thing. So... Again, thank you very much, Michael, for being with us. It's, it's always a pleasure to have you on. I always enjoy your, your insights because I think they're very solid in terms of uh, you know, what you're looking at, the foundational uh, supports that you're looking at, a different approach than most people take. So thank you very much for being with us. And, uh, always enjoy do, being on. Thank you, Jay. Thank, thank you. you very much. Well, we do have to go to break now, but uh, don't go away. James Perloff will be with me to talk about how you and I and the whole Western world are being prepared for one world government. Now, this is the most important issue, I think, so don't go away. Be right back with James Perloff. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS. XV and CTNXF on the OTC. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again James Perloff. Uh, James joins me the first Tuesday of every month to talk about his book, uh, Truth is a Lonely Warrior. We try to cover two chapters with each visit, and uh, so we will be spending most of the rest of this year, that is the first Tuesday of each month throughout the rest of this year, to cover this excellent book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior. I have found James' work to be trustworthy and exceptionally well-documented, and the work that he has carried out over the years, I think, has provided warnings of what is now taking place, uh, both economically and socially, in the country. The destruction of freedom and liberties that we have come to enjoy uh, certainly are being, in my view, are being uh, threatened uh, always more and more, it seems. This show continues to seek the truth about issues uh, that the status quo does not the status quo actually does its very best to hide from the view of most people and while many of the views expressed by James and other guests on this show are considered out of fashion and in some cases conspiratorial nonsense what I try to do is seek the truth even if that may cost me some listeners here and there well this month uh, in my interview with James we want to talk about chapter 7 in his book titled The Media 
and the nature of truth and lies, and chapter 8, which is titled The Destruction of Nations. Before we begin our discussion today, for the benefit of listeners who scoff at the notion of conspiracies, let me read you a direct quote from David Rockefeller on page 405 of his autobiography titled David Rockefeller Memoirs. Quote, some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interest of the United States and am conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and I'm proud of it. End of quote, David Rockefeller. Well, James, you know, uh, welcome and thank you for joining me again. Thank you, Jay, for having me back on a, on a great show. David Rockefeller, who is the oldest member and patriarch of the richest family in America, was, of course, instrumental in growing the Council on Foreign Relations into a massively influential institution that has really shaped the landscape to a great extent uh, of the American political system. But could you give our listeners a sense of how dominant the CFR has been, uh, getting its members into key government positions and into shaping the views of the American people? Uh, they certainly have you know, a lot of highly paid Ph.D. scholars from the prestigious universities uh, in the United States and elsewhere. But give, us, give our listeners some sense of, of how dominant the CFR has been. Well, since it was founded in 1921, the, the numbers really tell the story. Uh, they've had 23 secretaries of war or defense that have come out of the council and 20 treasury secretaries, 19 secretaries of state and 16 CIA directors. And actually, if you look uh, just today at the Obama administration, uh, John Kerry at state, Jacob Blue at Treasury, Chuck Hagel, and then Ashton Carter at uh, Defense, Johnston at Homeland Security, Secretaries of Commerce and Energy, all CFR. And in fact, the, this year, Obama's made four Federal Reserve appointments, Janet Yellen, of course, and Stanley Fisher as Vice Chairman, and Lael Brennard and Jerome pa uh, Powell to uh, governor positions, and they're all members of the CFR. We're talking about a group that has less than 5,000 members. But in terms of uh, shaping policy, over the past century, uh, we could point to the Bretton Woods Conference, which they planned at their economic and finance group before mm -hmm. Bretton Woods took place. They, they planned the UN through what they called their informal agenda group. And, of course, 47 members of the founding conference were CFR members, 1945. They planned the Marshall Plan uh, study group with a young David Rockefeller as secretary. It was not thought up by General George Marshall. They were the advisors who surrounded Lyndon Baines Johnson during the Vietnam War. And they're the guys who dreamed up the North American Union, people like Robert Pastor, the CFR. These, uh, these foreign policy entities uh, like NAFTA and uh, the Marshall Plan, these don't come from the American people. They're not the ones who demand them, and they don't actually come from our elected representatives, although they may ultimately vote on them in Congress, but they're dreamed up by the council, and it is the architect, the chief architect of our foreign policy, and they're able to do that uh, largely because they do dominate the uh, cabinets of presidents, whether the, the man in the White House is a Republican or Democrat. Yeah, and they probably will have something to say about who that man in the White House is so that they will uh, be sure to have him uh, not too far afield from their desires. But I would happen to think that probably the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, which President Obama just signed into law and we're not allowed to know about for four or five years, that probably was uh, was something they were working hard to push forward as well, wouldn't you think? Well, they're, they're totally interconnected with the multinational corporations that are planning the, the TPP, so there would be no question about that. Now, uh, this brings me to Chapter 7 of your book, which is uh, the first, uh, first of two chapters we want to focus on today. That's titled, The Media and the Nature of Truth and Lies. You start off the chapter uh, with a quote 
that I found very surprising from Thomas Jefferson. Would you care to comment on, on what that great founder of our country said about the media, which is, uh, in those days, was, was really confined to the printed press? Well, here's the exact quote. This is from a, a letter that Jefferson wrote to John Norvell of 1807. He said, quote, Nothing can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper. Truth itself becomes suspicious by being put into that polluted vehicle. The real extent of this state of misinformation is known only to those who are in situations to confront facts within their knowledge with the lies of the day. I really look with commiseration over the great body of my fellow citizens who, reading newspapers, live and die in the belief that they have known something of what has been passing in the world. And he added this, uh, Jefferson said, I will add that the man who never looks into a newspaper is better informed than he who reads them, inasmuch as he who knows nothing is nearer to truth than he whose mind is filled with falsehoods and errors, unquote, Thomas Jefferson. And, of course, since that time, we've had other media forms naturally arising, the radio and then television, but the principles that Jefferson spoke of still apply very much today. You know, I mean, you would think if you had the printed press, at least you'd have time to reflect on it. Right now, with the media that we have now, it seems to be just really quick sound bites and sort of instant gratification and stimulation and then on to the next topic without any reflection on it. So if anything, it would seem to me, whereas I, I, I get what Jefferson is saying, I think, but I, I also wonder, you know, if we're not worse off in a sense because it's just all stimulus now, it seems. Well, I think you're right. When you're reading something, and this has been... Uh noted before of uh, literature that you have, do have time to process and think about it, but when it's, it's, with television it's just reaction, and who knows, but there may even be some subliminal message that's uh, uh, is being uh, snuck into uh, the television images. Yeah, in, in this Chapter 7 you talk about the Rothschilds family. It's one of the richest families in Europe, if not the richest uh, in the world, and one of the richest certainly in the world. And you talk about how they managed to gain control of the uh, New York Times even after they failed to influence uh, President Lincoln during the Civil War. Can you explain how the Rothschild family managed to gain control over the New York Times and why that has uh, become so important? Well, I call it indirect control, and I, I picked on the Times just because it is such a symbol of the establishment press, but back in the 19th century, the chief Rothschild financial agent in America was named August Belmont, and his real name was Schenberg, but he, along with the J.P. Morgan interest, financed Adolf Ox, who, uh, with the big money behind him, then purchased the New York Times, and interestingly enough, back then, it only had a circulation of 9,000. It was really a very small newspaper, but it's amazing what the power of money will do. With that money, he moved it to its new location, which is now called Times Square, named of the Times Honor, and mm -hmm. he was able to buy you know, channels of distribution and get the best, pay for the best uh, editors and writers. But uh, that is the power of money. It is not necessarily the power of journalistic integrity. And, of course, the ownership passed from him to his son-in-law, Arthur Hayes Sulzberger, and then to Overall Dreyfus, and then to Arthur Ock Sulzberger, and they're all members of the Council on Foreign Relations, and the Times has consistently supported the CFR's views, the globalist views, over the years. Uh, that's easily demonstrated, and I give some examples in the book, and also you can easily show that many of the editors and reporters for the Times have been members of the CFR. And, you know, uh, Leslie Gelps, uh, who's a New York Times editor, did the uh, Pentagon Papers, which was supposed to be exposing what happened in the Vietnam War and demoralized the public to a large extent, but is he going to do an expose of the CFR? Well, obviously not, because he was its president for many years and still is its president emeritus. So there's this definite connection. They're part of the same hierarchy, the foreign policy establishment 
and the media establishment. You know, what uh, connection, if any, we, we've, we've mentioned the Rockefellers and now the Rothschilds. What connection, if any, are there between those two families? Well, the Rothschilds' interest in America go way back. It's my understanding that they were the chief power behind the original Bank of the United States that Andrew Jackson fought so bitterly. But if you go up to 1910, the Jekyll Island meeting, which is the meeting where the world's leading banking houses got together to form the Federal Reserve. You had the houses of Rothschild, Rockefeller, and Morgan, and representing the Rockefellers, of course, was Frank Vandalip of National City Bank, and Nelson Aldrich, who's the maternal grandfather of David Rockefeller, uh, along with the man who ran the meeting was uh, Paul Warburg, representing the Rothschilds. He was a partner in Kuhn Lobin Company, which was the Rothschilds banking satellite in New York City. So that's 1910, but moving at 100 years, I'm going to give you a quote, and this is from Forbes magazine, 2012. Quote, the Financial Times reports that RIT Capital Partners, part of the Rothschild banking dynasty, has bought a stake in Rockefeller Financial Services. RIT is acquiring a 37% interest. Former Chase Manhattan Bank Chairman David Rockefeller has a long-time personal relationship with the Rothschilds. In a press release, Rockefeller said, Lord Rothschild and I have known each other for five decades. The connection between our two families remains very strong. I'm delighted to welcome Jacob and RIT as shareholders and partners in the ongoing development of our investment management in wealth advisory businesses. Huh. So there you have more than 100 years of relationship. Yeah. Two of the most powerful families, uh, at least in the Western world, uh, combining there together and uh, forming the Council of Foreign Relations, which has been so influential, and with the money could buy uh, all the intelligent, uh, well, not all of the intelligence, but, you know, the best, uh, you know, the high-priced PhDs from Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge, what have you. And, you know, I, as a young person, I remember thinking, how can I question those guys? I mean, they're a heck of a lot smarter than my parents, and so I went, you know, sort of the inclination was to go with those smart guys. But in any event, uh, in Chapter 7, you talk about the interconnection between virtually all members of the mainstream media. You know, I'm wondering how that could happen. I mean, you know, most people, when they hear that sort of thing, they say, that's just another conspiratorial nut job i mean it cannot be because people are independent they're free uh they're not going to um, they're not going to be locked into uh, to one family or two families or you know to a small group but tell us how that how did that happen how did the how did the media become essentially not what it appears to be a free media you know we have msnbc sort of on the left within the within the political spectrum and you have fox on the right uh, but you know so on on one hand they seem to be different and they they give the appearance of being quite different uh but then uh, when it comes to changing things they they certainly don't make any differences so but how did how did the media become so uh so unified and inter- interconnected well it, uh, the answer to that uh, short answer is money uh, you know, giving you this quote, I'm sure on the show before, but uh, Ferdinand Lundberg, who wrote for the Wall Street Journal and other financial publications, wrote a book in 1937 about the powers to be. It was called America's 60 Families. And as we said in that book, he said, quote, the United States is owned and dominated by a hierarchy of its 60 richest families. These families are the living center of the modern oligarchy, which dominates America, functioning under a democratic form of government, behind which a de facto government, absolutist and plutocratic, has taken form, this de facto government is actually the government of the United States, invisible, shadowy. It's the government of money and a dollar democracy, unquote. Now, that was written uh, about 80 years ago, but in that book, in Lundberg's book, uh, Chapter 7, was called The Press of the Plutocracy, 
and Lindbergh, he was just using financial records. He he went from the East Coast to the West Coast, and he documented that virtually every major newspaper and newspaper chain was owned by these 60 families, either directly or through some agents uh, that were working for them. Quite impressive. But if you go beyond the age of newspapers, uh, you know, to the broadcast age, you find that William Paley was backed by Brown Brothers uh, Harriman. He was the founder of CBS, and Robert Sarnoff, the founder of NBC, was backed by Kuhn Loeb, and Henry Luce of Time Magazine was backed by J.P. Morgan. So it's uh, it's a matter of money, and it's still consolidated. You have very few corporations running the media today. You, in fact, have more than 90% of mainstream media run by just six corporations, which are uh, Time Warner, Walt Disney, Viacom, News Corp, CBS, and, and NBC Universal. And just to give an example of that, Time Warner owns... Uh, uh, Time Magazine, of course, and CNN, and Turner Broadcasting, and Cinemax, and TBS, and TNT, and Sports Illustrated, and Fortune, and Money, and People, and you can do the same with any of those other corporations, but it's uh, it's money uh, doing the talking, and the, the power of money has uh, resulted in the consolidation of the media. So consolidation of power in the hands of fewer and fewer people seems to be the direction that we've been going all along, even as uh, national... Uh, international sovereignty or the sovereignty of, of nations has been uh, declining with more and more power uh, at the head of fewer and fewer people, it seems to be. In 1991, David Rockefeller praised uh, leading publications like the New York Times and the Washington Post for keeping their mouths shut with respect uh, to secret meetings of the Bilderberg Group. And that, as I understand it, is a subsidiary organization of the Council of Foreign Relations. Well, Rockefeller said that the Bilderberg secret meetings were a key to peace and prosperity. Of course, we are seeing anything but peace and prosperity spreading around the globe right now. I mean, we have, of course, looking at uh, the problems in Europe. Uh, uh, China seems to be doing okay in some regards, but that is looks like it's, it could be a house of cards to fall any time, given the... A lack of free market initiatives, but in the United States, I believe we're in a recession now. We're heading back towards one, probably. But my question to you, James, is how can it be that despite the poor track record of economic and political policies espoused by the CFR, uh, and the public uh, that the public continues to worship these PhDs from Harvard, Princeton, Yale, and they, I mean, they don't seem to question. I mean, you would think after a while, people would start to say, "Wait a minute, this isn't working very well." But why do you think people aren't questioning it? But I don't think it's so much that the public worships, worships them as it's sort of self-worship by the, uh, by the uh, TV commentators themselves. But, of course, we know that the big media organs like CNN are losing viewers, and more and more people are following alternative media. But uh, their success has been through this uh, uh, monolithic ownership that we've been talking about, and... Uh, you know, there's an old maxim to repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth, right? We call that the big lie phenomenon. What happens when you own multiple media outlets, people hear the same thing over and over again, so they uh, eventually develop the impression that there must be consensus and this must be the truth, when in fact it's simply something that's being repeated through uh, media organs that have the same owners. Right, a little bit like Jefferson's warnings about the the print. You're better off not to read at all, and uh, mm-hmm. you'll have more a better handle on the truth if you probably if you turn the boob tube off, as they say. Uh, another quote uh, from Thomas Jefferson appears on page 86 of your book. Uh, would you care to read Je- what Jefferson had to say, uh, perhaps, and perhaps comment on it with uh, regarding allegations that those who 
believe the CFR is a conspiratorial organization seeking to overthrow uh, overthrow the U.S. are simply helpless paranoids. Um, yeah, Jefferson said this. He said, quote, single acts of tyranny may be ascribed to the accidental opinion of a day, but a series of oppressions begun at a distinguished period and pursued unalterably through every change of ministers to plainly prove a deliberate systematical plan of reducing us to slavery, unquote. I mean, that quote could really apply to today. But as far as uh, paranoia goes, it's just a matter of putting things together. Uh, it's obvious when you see these plans being played out. Uh, for example, uh, we know that at Jekyll Island that Paul Warburg ran that meeting. We know that Benjamin Strong of the J.P. Morgan just was there. And then what do we see? Lo and behold, without the public or the Congress even knowing about that meeting, we see Woodrow Wilson appointing Paul Warburg to be the first vice chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, and we see Benjamin Strong appointed to run the New York Fed, the very first head of the New York Fed, so the very guys who planned the bank now run the bank. Now, it's not paranoia to simply connect the dots and say this happened by design and not by accident, and all we're doing is applying the same principles that a police detective or a district attorney would would do in establishing that a crime has been committed. It's not paranoia. It's critical, rational thinking. Well, critical, rational thinking, which is something that I would argue our universities don't do a very good job of encouraging. Mm -hmm. More likely what we're encouraged to do is not think for ourselves, but groupthink in essence. I mean, I can just think back to the days when I was in the university and taking uh, classes. Uh, It was just a matter of regurgitating uh, what the good professor told me uh, and told the group, and uh, if you could replay it, you got your A. If you uh, didn't get it quite right, you got a C or something worse. But anyway, uh, 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 going to chapter 8, the destruction of nations, you know, playing the devil's advocate here, James, let me just try to do that. I, I, you and I are on the same page with most of this stuff, so it's not the easiest thing for me to do, but what if I told you I think moving towards a one-world government is a good thing? And the destruction of nationalism is good. It would keep people from, you know, nations from having wars. What world view do you hold that argues against the notion that a one-world government will be more efficient and more orderly than a world of various nations uh, who have different religions, different cultures, different beliefs? Wouldn't it be better if we could all just uh, get along and think alike? Well, it would be great if we did, but the reason you don't want a one-world government is the is uh, man's propensity for evil, and you don't want that uh, power being concentrated in one place. And it was Lord Acton who said that power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the Founding Fathers understood that. So even here within America, they made sure that we didn't have power, all power just vested in the president, but his power would be checked by the Congress. And even within the Congress, you had a check and a balance between the House and the Senate. And as another check, you had the federal uh, courts, the Supreme Court, which could act as a check on them. And on top of those three, you had the states, which by the Tenth Amendment, which we're now largely ignoring, had the power to check the federal government. So checks and balances are important. World government, if you put all authority in one regime, there is no check and balance. And, you know, in the old uh, days of the Cold War, and the Berlin Wall, you know, you could escape over the Berlin Wall to freedom on, on the West, right? But what if you had a, a condition where there was one government and the communists were on both sides? There's nowhere to escape. We do need uh, differing nations to put a check and balance on each other. And if, you, if we want to get a little bit biblical, we know that God himself separated the nations at the Tower of Babel in the book of Genesis to keep man from becoming too evil. So there's a lot 
to be said for keeping the nation separate, for having their own sovereignties, their own ethnicities and cultures. Yeah, well, certainly that was the idea of our founding fathers in the United States, too, to have states' rights, so that if you were unhappy in one state, you could move to another one that suited you better. Uh, of course, that is moving, uh, we're, states are losing their rights all the time, too, as we're seeing unfolding before our eyes. And then internationally, of course, the idea of, of stripping nations of their sovereignty. Let's talk about the means of this Council of Foreign Relations and this, this elite group that's trying to do this and set up a one-world government. Uh, I'd like you to comment on the following uh, trends of the past, if you would, because I think that sets up sort of the story as how things are unfolding. Talk about colonialism, if you would, and then Im immigration is another topic in your book, and then uh, new forms of government that are being planned or, or being now uh, evolving at this time. But start with colonialism, perhaps, or go through those three topics and, and help us understand how things are unfolding. Well, I'll do this, of course, much more concisely than in the book, but there is an overarching plan to form a world government, and I have no hesitation in saying that the EU, which came out of the common market, and the proposed North American Union that is supposed to come out of NAFTA are all part of this plan, regional stepping stones. Uh, you know, as the big new Brzezinski said, that we can't have world government in one step. He said the key to, to uh, globalization is progressive regionalization. He said that in 1995. But there are many steps to this, and the destruction of nations or national sovereignty has been, uh, has been uh, integral to that plan of world government. You must get rid of national sovereignty, and that's why the Council of Foreign Relations has always opposed it since its inception. In fact, the Council was founded as a direct reaction to the U.S. Senate's rejection of our joining the League of Nations, which is the first attempt at world government. But in terms of colonialism, uh, they have consistently attempted to separate and successfully actually separate the European nations from their colonies. Uh, why do they do that? To disempower them so that nations like England and Spain, which oversaw vast empires and were very powerful the sovereign nations could be reduced to basically nothing more or little more than provinces of the EU and their former colonies would become members of the UN where they would have dictators who would uh, accept orders from the international bankers in exchange for IMF loans. In terms of immigration, a lot of uh, awake people are alert to the fact that immigration is troubling our nation, but they understand that the principle of divide and conquer and I, my wife is an immigrant, I'm not against immigration, and I think there, there, there's definitely a need for uh, immigration with any nation. However, this massive immigration that they have been in favor of, the purpose is to divide a country by making it, making it lose its ethnicity. I'll just take an example. You take France. At one time, France consisted mostly just of Frenchmen. And... Uh, they're a common bond of heritage and flag and language, right? But then you have uh, these millions of African immigrants coming in, and uh, all of a sudden you have people there who don't identify with French culture or feel no allegiance to the flag, no allegiance to the uh, country's uh, uh, history, and uh, maybe even don't speak the French language. And once you have a country divided, you know, it's very politically correct for multiculturalism, but it's inherently divisive. And once you divide a country, it's easier for it to lose its uh, feeling of national self-identity and easier to absorb into a regional body like the EU. And as far as forms of government went, I talk in the book a little about monarchies maybe being 
a little less evil than we've been led to believe. And one of the reasons why we have seen so many monarchies toppled by this whole international banker oligarchy is that they know that to control a nation, uh, they can't get into the bloodline of a monarch. So they're very happy to see a revolution overthrow a monarch and replace it with democracy. And one thing I want to say about democracy, for all the, the good feelings we have about it, is that de democracy is inherently divisive. It divides a country, obviously, into different parties and factions. Whereas it used to be that people would rally around their monarch. He would, was someone who was uh, loyal to or was supposed to be loyal to the entire country. And so that's another feature that they wanted to get rid of of the political landscape was the monarchies and replace them with uh, democracies which they would control because they knew that with the power of wealth uh, and control of the media uh, all they need to control a country is 51% of the vote when you've got control of the, the media it's pretty easy to get that 51% yeah it, uh, I've heard it said that democracy is actually mobocracy so the 51% mm -hmm. then can do whatever it wants to the 49% and the uh, you know the protection of the minorities are simply not there, and we're seeing I think more and more of that unfold in the United States as, as time goes on. One of the topics that I picked up on from Chapter Eight is the ongoing policy of destabilization and chaos. And uh, you know, I mean, it's it's becoming increasingly chaotic uh, in my view. The global economy is uh, certainly the uh, the Middle East is becoming increasingly chaotic, uh, and so the movement to destabilize governments around the world by clandestinely overthrowing leaders, I think we just saw that in the Ukraine. Uh, we've seen the United States do that many times. Many times there are even elected governments that don't necessarily agree with us, and we send in our N NGOs or a CIA or whatever to destabilize. Uh, and folks like George Soros have been well known to sponsor some NGOs that are involved constantly in this Effort. Uh, I talked to Daniel McAdams, the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Uh, he talks to me almost every week about things that are going on like that. Uh, but you point out that this movement really took place starting at the end of World War One. Could you quickly talk about uh, just expand on that, if you would, and perhaps relate how the CFR was involved in triggering the war in Vietnam? Well, actually, we could even go back in terms of revolutions to the French Revolution, which was certainly a financed uh, event and carried out through secret societies. But as far as World War One, that was uh, the war that created the climate for the Bolshevik Revolution. And actually, there's a, a relevant quote uh, I'd like to give. It's a short one from sure. Nicholas Murray Butler of the Fabian Society in England. He said this in 1937. He said, quote, Communism is the instrument with which the financial world can topple national governments and then erect a world government with a world police and a world money, unquote. But wow. That summarizes a lot of the plan there, but we think of the Rockefellers and Karl Marx as these deadly enemies, but if you look at it over the years, there's no question that there's been collusion between the Marxist revolutionaries and the uh, banksters, and if, speaking of World War One, 1917, you had Kuhn Loeb's Jacob Schiff sending Leon Trotsky with 20 million in gold to to Russia, and of course uh, his partner uh, at Kuhn Loeb was was Paul Warburg. His yeah. brother Max Warburg arranged for Lenin to be sent into Russia with millions of dollars in gold and a a train, famously. And Kuhn Loeb even sent up a 50 million dollar fund for uh, Lenin and Trotsky in the Bank of Sweden. And this is all well documented in some books that I would recommend on this. 
would include Under the Sign of the Scorpion by Jerry Lena. He uses a lot of documents that came to light after uh, Glasnost had opened things up. But uh, some books I'm sure you're familiar with would be Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution by Anthony Sutton mm-hmm. and Red Carpet by Joseph Finder. And they document that all, even during the Cold War, the West was financing the East with technology and uh, loans. Yeah. You know, so it seems to me, James, the end game is really a one-world government. I think that's what, what we've been talking about here. And it seems to me uh, that we're moving very dra- rapidly in that direction. I would argue the TPP recently, you talked about Europe being united and uh, North America, the NAFTA agreement. It seems to me the TPP is aimed at pulling together uh, one wor- an Asian government uh, of sorts, although the TPP includes nations uh, around the world. Uh, but I think it's also meant to try to, to control the growth of China right now. But in any event, uh, the, the, one, the end game seems to be a one-world government, and now it seems that even Pope Francis uh, seems to be cooperating uh, with his encyclical on global warming and other issues. Do you see rising tensions between the West and NATO on the, on the one hand and the BRICS on the other as a grand uh, showdown over who gets to be the ultimate dictator of the world? That's a, that's a great question, and there's controversy uh, about that. Now, I guess one way to look at it would be that it's sort of a, a, a dialectic, uh, you know, the uh, thesis, antithesis, the, maybe the, the thesis being the Western banksters and the antithesis being the BRICS nation and the synthesis being the one-world banking system. But, you know, some people uh, think that the, it's just a charade, the BRICS opposition, and that because people are so suspicious of the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and the West, the Fed and the IMF that they want the BRICS to come forward, postulating that the BRICS nations really answer ultimately to the same powers that be, and that the people of the world would much more be much more accepting of a one-world currency if it came from someone like the BRICS, who appear to be genuine alternatives to the financial powers that have done so much destruction. But I don't know what your own sources are telling you about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's, those are some things that are pretty hard to know. And perhaps even the players uh, in, uh, you know, the, the seemingly the opposition bricks don't really know. I mean, I suppose it's something that's, that's playing out over time, and uh, it, it's impossible to predict. But, uh, you know, knowing what human beings are, James, it seems to me that, you know, the selfish nature of human beings would uh, probably have all of these guys who are in agreement with the notion of a one-world government trying to vie for power to become the ultimate uh, leaders within these w- within this one-world government, I suppose. But, um, you know, re- really, I guess the most important question of all for our listeners, James, you know, as we're seeing the increased carnage, increased chaos that's resulting from, you know, from dictatorial monetary policy, the Keynesians, the communist, essentially, I think Keynes is, is communist light, or even almost, you know, it, it puts a good spin and makes it look like a respectable communist dictatorial policy. But we're seeing increasing economic chaos. We're seeing increasing international chaos, and certainly in the Middle East, or you know, on the one on one hand, uh, sometimes we're uh, we're fighting against ISIS, and the next, you know, maybe at the same time in some other part of the Middle East, we're supporting ISIS. ISIS gets our weapons; they turn against us. I mean, it's just a mess. I, I don't. It's just so so chaotic. So the big question, I think, the most important question for all of us is how do we prepare ourselves? materially and spiritually to face what I think is going to be a very bad situation ahead of us. Well, I haven't sounded this kind of alarm before this year, but I do have an article on my website, jamesperloff.com, on Jade Helm, 
And I do believe there's a genuine threat that we may see the United States transitioning towards martial law. We see it with these massive convoys of equipment. We see it with these lockdowns, with this uh, increasing ISIS threat, which many believe that these ISIS events, the Charlie Hebdo type events, are actually being staged in order to bring about a militarization of the police. And I think that one piece of advice then that I, I would, or one solid piece of counsel is to, that people should be prepared for the possibility of the electrical grid being down, which would mean no access to ATMs, uh, the possibility of need to have uh, uh, reserve currency, alternative forms of currency, and also the possibility of food shortages, fuel shortages, just being ready as you would be for a hurricane or other geo event. Uh, I think people more than ever should be prepared. Uh, I'm speaking of the material plane. Sure. Uh, being prepared uh, for shortages uh, of electricity and food and those types of things. But on the spiritual dimension, people should also be asking more important questions than where the Dow Jones is headed. I think it's time for us to be asking those questions like, what is the meaning of life, and why am I here, and what happens to me when I die, and is there a God, and who is God? And, you know, the Bible says that uh, of God, it says, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I think that, uh, you know, Jesus said, uh, build your treasure in heaven. And I think these are the kinds of uh, wisdoms that we need to be looking to when we reach this type of uh, potentially lethal collapse types of scenarios that uh, appear very realistic in uh, in the future, perhaps the near future. Yeah, well, indeed, uh, certainly uh, when times get difficult is when we start to uh, be more inclined to ask those kind of questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess, you know, if we realize that, uh, as the psalmist says, we live to be 70 or, if we're really strong, 80 years, and then we go to the home of our ancestors, and we might want to know, if we go to the home of our ancestors for eternity, we might want to know something about where that is and what it's all about. So, anyway, James, thank you very much for for giving us the overview of chapters 7 and 8. We'll look to catch the, uh, the next couple of chapters uh, in a month from now. So thank you very much for being with us today. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Next week, I'll be talking to Franklin Sanders, who was falsely accused by the United States government, unjustly sentenced to prison uh, by the United States because of his views on gold and silver and other laws. Uh, if you think that you are safe in the hands of the United States government, wait until you hear Franklin's story. And that took place some time ago. Uh, it is, I believe, a grave warning of what may lie ahead for anyone who dares not to bow Uh, to our prevailing Caesar in the White House and whoever, uh, wherever our world government leaders uh, in the future sit. But in any event, it should be another very interesting program, so I hope that you'll join me next week. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my sponsor, uh, Matt Widener, my engineer, and thanks to all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Novo Resources Corporation, trading symbols NSRPF on the OTCQX and NVO on the Canadian Securities Exchange, is an advanced junior mining exploration company whose highly prospective assets are located in the Hammersley Basin of Western Australia. Novo's flagship asset, its Beaton's Creek Project, has an NI43101 compliant resource of 420,000 ounces at a grade of 1.5 grams per ton. With $10 million in cash and strong shareholder support from Newmont Mining, Novo looks to complete a feasibility study in the first quarter of 2015. 